All right, Alexander, let's talk about the situation in Ukraine. An interesting interview that uh, Zelensky gave to, I believe, Rada TV, which is the Ukraine Parliament TV uh, channel. He said a lot of interesting things. What, uh, what did Zelensky say? He talked about uh, invading Russia, I guess. He talked yeah. about shaping the conflict as some sort of uh, Israeli scenario. He talked about elections in 2024. What do you make of the interview that he gave? And what do you think he's, uh, he's trying to tell the people of the collective West and the people of Ukraine? Yes, I think what what he is the first thing to say is that he's he wasn't talking like a man who is riding to victory. Now, that's the first thing to say. He's not talking any longer about a successful counteroffensive, a march to the sea. I mean, you know, he hasn't given up on any of that, not officially. But the kind of language that he's now using about a long war, about not attacking Russian territory, about those kind of things, suggests that he's gradually accepting that the offensive, this current offensive that Ukraine is still engaged in, is not going to succeed. He's also aware of the fact that Western military support is going to start to fade away. He's probably aware of the fact that political support is trying to fade away. And I saw this interview first and foremost as addressed to the Ukrainian people. So he's telling the, telling the Ukrainian people a number of things. Firstly, we're in for the long term. So we're going to go on fighting. We have to go on fighting. We're going to become like Israel. We're going to survive like Israel. We're going to go on fighting indefinitely with all the weapons that we have. We're going to carry out another mobilization soon. That's clearly now in the works. Everybody can see this. But we're not going to deal the Russians a knockout blow this autumn. So the offensive isn't going to succeed. Crimea isn't going to be recaptured. Any of those things. That's the first message that he is through this very complicated interview trying to convey to the Ukrainians. The second is that we don't have the resources to strike deep into Russia. And it's not a good idea for us even to try. So let's not first forget about trying to capture towns and villages in Belgorod region. Let's forget about launching deep missile strikes on Russian bases in, um, uh, you know, deep inside Russia. We are not going to be able to expand the war. The, po the politics of this, the international support for this isn't there. But of course, the reality is it's actually different from that. Ukraine doesn't have the military ability to do this. Now, of course, he's not accepting that Crimea is Russian territory. He never will. But you could start to see how this is perhaps starting to shift the ground about Crimea as well, that Crimea is also out of reach. And then he talked about Ukraine's industrial capacity. He said that, you know, Ukraine has massively increased weapons production. In July, he gave no figures. He said that he's authorised production of various types of missiles. Well, we haven't seen much sign of that. But again, it seemed to me like he was preparing the Ukrainian people for the fact that there's going to be a reduction in military aid from the West. So he's again talking about self-reliance, self-reliance in terms of domestic production, self-reliance in terms of manpower, 
He talked about conserving manpower. He said we can't go on being profligate. We can't go on throwing away lives of people. We have to conserve them. That's what we need to do in order to be able to prolong this war for as long as we possibly can. My overall in overwhelming impression is that he's written off the offensive. He understands the offensive isn't going to succeed. He's preparing Ukraine for the def a defensive strategy, holding out as long as possible. He doesn't want to negotiate. And he's also preparing Ukrainians for the possibility that there's going to be a winding down of military support from the West. The one, he's, the one thing he's not prepared to do is to enter into negotiations with the Russians. But that was my overall take of this interview. Very interesting interview, indeed, as you said, and one that marks a decisive change of tone. How do you explain what Alensky said yesterday with some of the, the media reports coming out yesterday as well, for example? Forbes, uh, David Axe, once again, talking about Ukraine gaining momentum in the counteroffensive. Uh, the Guardian had an interesting uh, article on uh, the, the UK, I guess he, he could be called now the UK mastermind behind the new and improved offensive that has been uh, planned out 11 days ago, uh, Radikin, uh, Tony, Tony Radikin. And he's the, he's the brains now behind this new offensive, which is, which is being launched or is going to be launched. Uh, to be fair, there there are collective West uh, mainstream media outlets which which are sounding the alarm and saying the the counteroffensive is is going nowhere; it's a failure. But it seems like the last day or two, especially coming from from the UK, it seems there's there's like an uptick in hope that you know we've we've got Urojanye uh, where we've liberated. They're saying that they've liberated Rapatinje. We're gaining momentum now, and, and the plan towards Melitopol is still on the table. And here we have this great military planner who's gotten all the forces together in Poland, and there's a new strategy, and we're going to make this happen. How do you, I'm just curious to see how you square Aletsky's words with what, what we've been seeing from the media over the last day or two. Not all well, the media, but some of them. Not, yeah. not all of the media, and predominantly, it must be said immediately, the British and some parts of the European media. But of course, the British are much more invested in this war than the United States is. And I think that's the first thing to say here, that the United States always has the option of walking away from these kind of conflicts. It would be a major political and geopolitical defeat for them, that the United States would survive as a great power. I mean, it, would, it's, it is a great power. Of course it would survive as a great power. It would still maintain important alliances in Europe. It could go on and proceed from there. For Britain, it's a different thing, because Britain has seen a whole succession of uh, uh, major setbacks in recent years, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, elsewhere. It's the British military has been exposed as a, basically a shadow force, down to 40 tanks. So their attempt to retain relevance and importance and meaning has been through this war in Ukraine. And they've invested in it massively, massively in terms of such resources as they have, but also psychologically and politically and emotionally. So 
they're aware of all of these rumblings that are going on in the United States. They're aware of the problems with the offensive. And, of course, they're also aware of the doubts that are starting to develop within Ukraine itself. And what they want to do is they want to say, look, let's not give up now. We are making progress. It may not be great progress. It may not be very fast progress. But we've got a brilliant planner, Admiral Radikin, who's, you know, taking charge of everything. We've got the Ukrainians finally listening to the advice that we are making. We finally captured Rabotino. In fact, I have to say this. This morning, the Ukrainians announced, the Ukrainian uh, Deputy Defense Minister, Hanna Malyar, said that they have captured Rabotino. This is this village of 480 people that they've been trying to capture for two and a half months. Within hours of that, in fact, I think minutes of that, string of reports from the Russians saying, no, no, Rabotino is still contested. There's a major Ukrainian attack on Rabotino last night. 80 armored vehicles deployed there. They were able to press forward into the center of Rabotino, but we pushed them back. The Ukrainians have suffered heavy losses. We still control the southern area of Rabotino. The central parts of Rabotino continue to be gray zone. And as the hours have passed, we're getting more and more reports to this effect from more and more different Russian sources, which suggest that it is probably true. So, you know, this great victory at Rabotino that we've been hearing about, it hasn't been achieved. But anyway, the point is the British do not want to admit that this whole operation has failed, because if they do, they're exposed. They are once again involved in a failure, people will start to say, what is the international weight and importance of Britain? And of course, deep down, I suspect the British are also seriously concerned that if this whole thing ends in a debacle, given the enormous role they've played in getting the Americans involved, in getting the Europeans involved, in allying with the neocons in the United States, they're worried that they will be blamed by important people in Washington for having led them along. I read a very interesting piece by Gordon Hahn, who's a really good scholar, uh, writes wonderfully well about Ukrainian matters. And he says that already there is criticism in Ukraine itself among some people in Kiev about the fact that the West is thinking now, the US is thinking of, you know, downplaying its support, is quietly negotiating with the Russians. And there's real anger in Kiev. People are saying, look, the British led us here. They played an instrumental role in getting us to walk out of the Istanbul agreements. And look what's happened. So the Ukrainians might be preparing to blame Britain. The, uh, the Americans might be prepared to blame Britain. The Europeans conceivably might end up blaming Britain as well. So the British feel themselves exposed. So they can't quite give up hope that this offensive is going to succeed after all. Zelensky's words tell a completely different story. And he's the man on the scene. He's the president of Ukraine. He should know. Yeah, I have to, I have to tell you, when I read that Guardian piece on, uh, on Radikin, I mean, obviously it was a PR uh, post. That's, that's, that's clear. But I don't know if, if they're building him up in order to build him up 
because they feel like that he can he can make uh, he can change the, the tide of the conflict and make it a success, or if they're building him up in order to to knock him down. <laughs> I mean, that was I was kind of like they seem to be building up this guy a lot. Uh, I would be worried if I was him because I he may be, very... be the, the the fall guy. Yeah, I, I I would be very worried if I was him. I would say, by all accounts, by the way, he's a, he's a, he's actually an, a, 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 you know a, a good decent man but i mean he's way out of his depth here and note something else about him i mean he's an admiral <laughs> this is a land war i mean you know what exactly is he is he doing here which is going to make it possible for him to bring all the pieces together i mean this is presumably outside his particular area of expertise so i mean you know it, it's not perhaps the most ideal person to be running a land war so i i would be worried for him and i'm sure by the he way, makes he a good is. target, though. He makes a very good target. He yeah. makes a good target to, to pin this on. How, how exactly? You, you mentioned that, that, that Zelensky is talking about being uh, self-reliant, self-sufficient. They're going to they're gonna build uh, production plants. They're going to manufacture Swedish weapons and German weapons. And all of these European countries are signing deals to, to create weapons, uh, production facilities and in Ukraine, but outside of those those contracts, and that's all we have now, I don't even know if we have contracts, to be quite honest, outside of the rhetoric that there are going to be weapon production facilities inside of Ukraine, how exactly does, uh, does Ukraine become self-sufficient when their entire economy, if you even want to call it that, is, is based on handouts from the United States? I mean, if the United States pulls the plug on financing Ukraine, there is no no government, there is no economy, and Europe can't afford Ukraine. That's that's very clear. I mean, the latest statements from Olaf Scholz indicate that that Germany is not going to even be able to to subsidize their people and their businesses for uh, electricity expenses this winter. Yes. How exactly is this self sufficiency going to going to be achieved if this is indeed what's going to happen uh, to Ukraine? Well, it's a complete fantasy. I mean, the only way that could happen is if the war was called off, if the Russians were persuaded to stop the war so that, you know, they weren't launching missile strikes and fighting Ukraine. So, again, I mean, in itself, this is an absolute, it's another narrative that Zelensky is spinning. It's um, what he does. Now, you know, I, I have to say it reminds me, I mean, more and more of this, more and more of this rhetoric, and I you know one doesn't want to press analogies too far, but it, it, it is starting to remind me more and more of, you know, the kind of things that people were saying in Germany in the last months of the Second World War, from about December, November, December 1944, or, you know, right up to the end, which is, we're going to continue fighting, we're going to be able to fight all by ourselves, we're going to call up you know, all the you know, people, the remaining people of our country, and they did, by the way, they called up hundreds of thousands of uh, older men and teenage boys and even some girls to fight. I know one of the girls who was called up. I knew, I mean, she's passed away, but I knew her. and I, I, I've, she, she was a member of my wife's family, and I had some very interesting discussions with her about all of that. And there was talk about wonder weapons, that all the wonder weapons were going to come in, and that there was going to be huge increases in production of weapons. And a lot of this kind of rhetoric at that time. And, of course, what it was all intended to do because the people who were behind all of that 
actually knew the truth. I mean, by this point, they understood that it was impossible, that sooner or later, fairly soon, the whole thing would collapse. But what they were trying to do was to sustain the war, to keep people fighting, to keep hope alive, that even with everything closing in, somehow Germany would be able to come through. And it seems to me this is exactly what Zelensky is doing now. He's talking about you know, huge increases in arms production, which is the Germans were talking about, huge increases in arms production. Uh, we see the call up of hundreds of thousands of people who are going to turn the tide of the war. And of course, that's exactly what Zelensky is talking about. He's talking about a long war, about you know, Ukraine becoming the new Israel and you know, living indefinitely in kind of war conditions. And again, it's trying to give people hope, even as the situation deteriorates. And that, of course, brings us to the perhaps most interesting question of all, which is, what exactly is his long-term plan? I mean, we know about the German leaders that they didn't really have a long-term plan. They were keeping the war together. They were clinging to the idea that the Allies would fall out with each other. And they were still hoping for that right up to the very last moment. And of course, it didn't happen, but they were clinging to that kind of hope. But to the extent that they had a plan, one gets the sense that the German leaders, basically, more important for them was to keep the war going and then lose and, you know, have a kind of twilight of the gods moment which is what they achieved. But is that what Zelensky is up to? I don't think so. I suspect that at some level he's still hoping that something might happen in Russia that might turn things around. Or alternatively, there could be the starting, starting work about a stab in the back type of legend that Ukraine was doing very well fighting the war. Its offensive was actually gaining ground. It was building up its defences, strengthening its industrial economy. And if things in the end fail, it's not because of Ukraine losing the ability to continue the struggle, but because political and economic support from the West collapsed. And I can see, unfortunately, that some people in Ukraine might believe that. Some people in the West might believe that as well. And amongst the people who will probably want to believe it are the British. Yeah, but how does, how does that help Zelensky? I mean, oh, well. okay, they can push the stab in the back narrative, but it's not going to better his position at all. Maybe, maybe he's hoping that this will uh, put the the Banderites at ease. Maybe, yeah. maybe he's trying to 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 say, you know, it wasn't my fault. Uh, Banderites, um, don't don't come after me. It was well, it was a- the West that betrayed us. Maybe, but well, I don't a- think that's going to to work. Um, you know, do, do you also believe uh, to answer? As you answer that question, do you also believe that you're getting the same type of discussion in the collective West as well as to what's the plan afterwards? Because as you were explaining the situation with, uh, with this interview with uh, Zelensky and, uh, and the financing um, being a question mark as to how Ukraine is going to, going to make it through this period, there was a Bloomberg article a couple of days ago where they interviewed Justin Trudeau and Trudeau 
made a very interesting statement, and he's been one of the people that's been very supportive of Zelensky. I mean, he's invested a lot in his friendship with Zelensky. He said that even if the U.S. cuts off the funding after the elections, he said, after the elections, if the Republicans win, we're going to continue to give money to Ukraine. He said, as long as it takes, we're going to support Ukraine. So do you think that there's also some discussion taking place among the, the collective West elite as to whether they're, they're going to drop Ukraine, whether they're going to continue to fund Ukraine, what no. happens as, as the counteroffensive collapses. I mean, they don't seem to have a plan either. No, they they're don't making have a plan. it up as they go along. They are making it up as it goes along. But you can see what's happening because, of course, Justin Trudeau is every bit as invested in this conflict as the British are. He's been one of the most fervid supporters of Ukraine. And, of course, he also has to consider that there are supporters of Ukraine in his government like Christopher Freeland, who have, you know, historic reasons to be committed to Ukraine. I mean, she has a Ukrainian background and there's large numbers of people of Ukrainian extraction in, in Canada who are important voters. So he has to think all about that. But you can see what Trudeau is also doing. Firstly, by saying we will go on supporting Ukraine as long as it takes. We don't need the United States. So that is, in a way, trying to shape the political debate in the United States itself. Saying to people in the United States, well, we're here, we're going on to support Ukraine. You may have your doubts. We don't have those doubts. And Trudeau may be hoping that by saying that, that will reinforce people like Victoria Nuland, who want to go on continuing to support Ukraine indefinitely. It will give support to them. They'll be able to say, well, the Canadians aren't giving up, the British aren't giving up, nor should we. But of course, the other thing is, and this is perhaps where we come back to the stab in the back philosophy, because of course, everybody knows that Canada can't <laughs> replace the United States. It's got, what, a tenth of the population that the United States does. Its economy is nowhere near as big as that of the US. Not, I mean, not remotely so. The Europeans can't do it by themselves. Josep Borrell, by the way, who clearly sees the writing on the wall. He's made it clear that he's not going to remain high representative for much longer, another another victim of the Alensky curse. You know, they're all gradually starting to disappear, walk away from the scene. They all know that all this talk about, you know, them going on by themselves without the Americans is just nonsense. I mean, it's absolute rubbish. But you can see again that talking in this way, we will continue, even if the Americans don't, it's trying to shift the blame onto the Americans, onto the Republicans specifically. So again, it's the cultivation, if you like, of the stab in the back narrative. The Ukrainians are up to it. Zelensky's, I think, preparing the ground for it within Ukraine. And I think some of the Western leaders who are most exposed, the British eventually, Trudeau now, some people in Germany, Birbock and Harbeck and people like that, you can already see where it's going. And that that's what they're up to. Now, but, of course, Zelensky himself, what is he going to do? Well, I'm not sure what he thinks about his own future. But, just saying, there have been reports that he's now bought himself another great villa in Egypt, <laughs> of all places. And one does wonder whether perhaps that isn't 
such a complete coincidence that he's making these comments, even as he's making all of those other comments, which seem to be preparing the Ukrainian people for, um, well, a course of the war, a failure of the war that he's looking to blame on someone else. Yeah, the, the, the smart... Uh collective West leaders are going to resign now. The smart ones yeah. will resign now. Yes. <laughs> so Borrell, Borrell may not be as dumb as we think he is. Well, right He's well, like, indeed. I'm out of here well, in 2024. Well, indeed. <laughs> well, indeed. well in, in, I mean, in fairness to Borrell, I mean, he was one of the first political leaders in the West who was highlighting the problems with ammunition. The fact that Ukraine can't get by without more ammunition. And um, he actually said at one point that, you know, unless we can sort out this problem, then the point will come when the war, when Ukraine will lose and it could lose within weeks. I mean, it could it could happen very fast. And those problems with ammunition have never been solved. And there's been a long article in the national interest, which basically says so. I mean, it's been an issue we've been talking about for months on this program. Brian Balletic has talked about it. Alex Vashinin has talked about it. Burrell was the first political leader to talk about it. And we see that that problem has never been solved. It couldn't be solved, though. I mean, he can, talk, he, he can highlight it, but it wasn't something that you could solve within a, a no, day or two no, or a week or a month. No, I mean, no. it takes years, years to solve it something takes, like that. It, but, it takes years to solve something like that. But that's the single thing that neocons of all persuasions find it is impossible to understand. They have this sort of outlook that all you need to do is press a button and what you want will appear. It doesn't work like that. It didn't work like that, by the way, in the Second World War. You know, we all hear about this gigantic US industrial miracle in the United States in the Second World War, which happened. But of course, it required enormous amount of organisation before the civilian economy could be mobilized in that kind of way. And then, of course, at that time, the United States had an industrial base, a manufacturing base, which made up a bigger proportion of global manufacturing than China's does today. So, you know, which is not the case any longer. So, you know, but neocons never talk about these things. That's not something they worry about. And they didn't, think, they didn't think about them before the war began. And to a great extent, I suspect they're still in denial about them now. Yeah, just a final thought to wrap up the video. I bet you that the, the, the leadership of, uh, of the EU, I bet you Trudeau, I bet you Zelensky, they're all hoping in a strange way, in an odd way, they're all hoping that Trump wins the election in 2024 because then they can just blame it all on Trump. That would be their easy way out. If Trump were to win, and then they could say, well, we lost to Russia because Trump. And there'll be a large percentage of the population that will buy into that narrative. <laughs> you know, they... They, they may be saying this is this is our way out of this if we can just last until the presidential elections then we may have a, a way to to explain away our loss so i think what really worries them is a collapse from now until the presidential election that's what's really worrying to them yes because uh, they won't have anybody to scapegoat this on 
Absolutely, and you're absolutely correct. And can I just say, if you're talking about Britain, there's been a whole series of articles now appearing in the British media, particularly in the Daily Telegraph, which is, of all of the newspapers, the one closest to the British government, which have started to predict that Donald Trump is going to win the 2024 election. I mean, they're actually now increasingly saying that. And they're saying that in a way that makes you feel that they want it to happen. And you're absolutely right. It solves for many of these European leaders and for some of these neocon people in the United States their problem. They can blame it all on the bad orange man. We would have won if it hadn't been for him. He's the person who's created all this trouble. He is the man who really, uh, you know, is still, you know, works for Putin. We have never been able to establish how he does it, but clearly he does. He's got this affinity for authoritarian leaders. He's the person who's going to backstab Ukraine. And you can see that whole narrative is now being prepared. Zelensky's doing it. The British will probably start to do it in a more elaborate way before very long. And, of course, Trudeau's also up to it as well. <laughs> it's a very easy narrative for them to create. It's okay. A, yeah. yeah. I, I'm going to just, just, <laughs> just, 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 yeah. just finish by saying one thing. The one place where I think that narrative will fail to take hold is in the one country which really matters, which is the United States. I, I, I think that in the United States, people will see through it. Even people who are hostile to Donald Trump, um, all you have to do is to read the American media and the kind of comments and commentaries that are now appearing, one after the other. There is a flood of these articles appearing. And the fact that they're appearing in the way that they are, suggests that they're being inspired by people within the administration and that there is increasing amount of discontent with the road that the neocons have taken the United States onto. So, and I think amongst the wider American public, you can see the polls now moving increasingly to deep scepticism about this war. So, you know, the British can say it's the Americans and it's the bad orange man. The Canadians can do it. The Ukrainians, of course, will do it. Some people in Germany will. But in America itself, that is not going to gain traction. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Some people will buy into it, but the majority of the population will say, no, this was this was Biden's doing. Yeah. Okay, we'll end the video there. Uh, TheDurad.Locals.com. We are on Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, Telegram, and Rockfin. And go to the Durad shop, 10% off. Use the code. Good day. Take care.